Hey, and welcome to this episode of What the Actual F. My name's Harmony, and well, I've got a doozy for you guys today. If you are somebody who listens to a lot of true crime podcasts or watches a lot of crime shows, I'm sure you know all about the case that we are going to discuss today. However, the case I want to tell you about today was the very first crime case that I really dove into. I remember a show coming on many, many years ago when my mom and I were cleaning the house. My mom was obsessed with true crime, and for the record, I do say was, I speak about my mother in past tense, but the woman is very much alive. I mean, after all, I don't think you can kill the devil. Anyways, a show came on about Martha Moxley. That's right, any armchair detective can probably tell you all about this case. An amateur sleuth like myself could sit for hours and tell you about the frustration that goes through with this case. Today, I want to focus on the 1975 murder of 15-year-old Martha Moxley. I also want to dive into the insanely long criminal investigation and trial that would follow. Martha's name may not ring a bell for some of you, but the case did generate a great deal of media attention. And that is because the two suspects in the case belong to one of America's most famous families, the Kennedys. Are you guys ready to discuss the very first case that got me into true crime? Martha's murder and her case that would follow is exactly why I sit here today. This case is frustrating and angering. I think the most frustrating part about this case for me is the way that the closure doesn't really come. We all know exactly who is responsible for this murder, and by the end of this episode, you will too. The frustration comes in where that man is today. He is completely free, while Martha is dead. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and ghouls, welcome to this episode of What the Actual F. This is the murder of Martha Moxley. Kennedy cousin Michael Skagel convicted in the murder of Martha Moxley. I know Michael Skagel, and I know he didn't commit the crime. Martha was an extremely uh, popular, attractive girl. She liked everybody, and everyone liked her. Typical teenager in probably the best sense of the term. Martha was found dead under a pine tree adjacent to their home. You know, we knew Michael had done this. Absolutely, no doubt. Before we really dive into the case of Martha Moxley, I need to let you guys know you are going to hear some snoring. Those little snores in the background are all brought to you by our French bulldog, Binks. He just likes to throw on his own little ambiance every time I record a podcast. Another thing I just wanted to like share with you guys before we dive in is that this is the first episode of What the Actual F that is being recorded, edited, and released all from my very own office. I officially have a in-home studio to do all of my work from. All right, now with all the excitement that I just shared, because this is so exciting for me, let's go ahead and dive into something that isn't exciting. Murder. Okay, murder's a little exciting, but it's also super fucked up, so like, okay. Martha and her family moved from California to an estate in Bellhaven, which is in Greenwich Village in Connecticut. 
Side note, I've been to Connecticut. I lived there for a few years. Some of my closest friends live up there. It's beautiful. I actually got to drive through Greenwich Village on the way to visiting New York and holy crap, it is stunning. Now, this is actually considered one of the most affluent towns in America. So me saying like, whoa, holy crap, it's beautiful is really an understatement. You have to see this place to just, I don't know, feel extremely poor, but also just marvel in its beauty because like wealth is definitely in that area, just for sure. Now Martha and her family moved here just 18 months before Martha's life would be taken. Martha's father was a partner at an accounting firm and had been hired to lead the company's New York City office. So this meant they needed to move. However, instead of living in the city, he chose Greenwich Village, which isn't actually that far because Connecticut is right there on the border. Martha lived with her parents and also her brother John, who was two years older than her. This was a big move for Martha, and being a teenager, it wasn't exactly the easiest. However, Martha did end up adjusting just fine and ended up loving Greenwich Village. Her classmates would also vote her as the girl with the quote, best personality. And she quickly made many friends. This would lead her to spend most of her time out at their houses or at the local yacht club. According to her friends, Martha loved her new neighborhood and was involved with many extracurricular activities, doing things all around the neighborhood. She also enjoyed doing stuff for the school yearbook, she played field hockey, basketball, and she even participated in ballet. Martha had a lot on her plate and she enjoyed every bit of it. Many people even stated that Martha was even the center of attention and she loved it that way. Because people just enjoyed having her around and she enjoyed being around them. Well, here's where we gotta get a little bit dark. Because Martha's personality was so intoxicating, so many people swooned to be near her. So many friends just enjoyed basking in her attention and her laughter. Sadly though, it would be one of those people that were drawn to her that would take Martha's life. The instrument used in the striking of the Moxley girl was a golf club, we know that. My name is Steven Skakel, and I am the brother of Michael Skakel. Michael Skakel puts himself at the crime scene. Michael Skakel makes admissions that only a murderer would make. At the time this murder was committed, my brother was in the other side of town. The evidence is much stronger in suggesting that other people may have committed the crime. Okay, this brings us to the setting of Greenwich, Connecticut on the evening of October 30th in 1975. This is when 15-year-old Martha Moxley and her friends were all getting ready to participate in Mischief Night. This was a night around every Halloween that the kids in Bellhaven, the gated community in which Martha lived in, would pull pranks on all of the neighbors. They would go around and play Ding Dong Ditch or Smash Pumpkins and TP Yards. Be really fucking annoying teenagers, you know what I'm saying? Just doing the typical annoying lame shit that many teenagers go do to have fun. It's not really that it's like harmful to anybody, it's just to the adults in the equation, a nuisance. 
But this was mischief night and everybody in the community knew that it was happening. And like, you can look back at like some of the dumb shit I'm sure that you did as a kid and be like, huh? kids man but i'm sure the people on the receiving end of the dumb shit you did probably didn't think that they were probably like those fuckers anyways martha and her friends were all getting ready for this now during the night's annoying halloween pranks and festivities martha's friends would go on to say that she ended up flirting with and maybe even hooking up with tommy skakel now it can't really be confirmed tommy does say that him and martha were intimate about 20 minutes before she left to make the 200 yard walk home but just because tommy says it happens i'm sorry we can't really say it did because martha can't say that it did either because well she's dead and I'm sorry, but without both parties able to confirm, all we can say is maybe. Plus, the people that were at the party say they saw the two flirting. However, it's not for sure that anyone witnessed them actually doing anything in any intimate nature. However, what was stated by several people were that they saw Martha and Tommy leaving together. They walked behind a fence near the pool in the Skakel's backyard. What happened from here and out of everyone's view forward, only two people know, and one of them is not alive to share. For those of you wondering, by the way, the Skakel house was located just across the street from Martha's home. And the Skakel's home was a place to the neighborhood kids known as a place for no adult supervision. After all, Tommy and Michael's mother had passed away from cancer. Adults weren't really in the home to really watch nor care about what the kids did. A lot of the kids came there because they just had free reign. As a kid, this seems kinda cool. I'm not gonna lie, I had friends that would wanna come to my house because my mom was hardly ever home. My dad was in the service and gone a lot because my parents were separated, divorced, all that. Had a pretty rough childhood. However, my mom just wasn't home. However, now as an adult, I actually know, and I'm sure many of you understand, if there is a lack of adult supervision in a home, this usually means that nobody cares about those kids and that's really sad and not cool. However, as a kid, <laughs> we don't really see this. Yeah, there were like the occasional adults in the house, but none that really gave any care about the kids that would come and go. However, this would be the perfect setting for a murder. And that's exactly what would happen. My name's uh, Richard Burns and I lived in Greenwich back then. That's the first time in 45 years we'd ever talked about it. My name is Tori Holland. I grew up in Belhaven and in 1975 I was 15 along with Martha. She just had this beaming personality and her beautiful blonde hair. Smiled all the time. I just smiled, you know, it just made you feel like you were the center of, of, of the world. The Skakels lived across the street from the Moxleys. They were a family of all these boys, except for Julie. I went to school with them, and Michael was a year behind me, and Tommy was a year ahead of me. It was a lovely place to grow up. You just felt safe, and that all changed after that night. This brings us to the next day, Halloween itself. Now Martha's body would end up being discovered around noon by her friend Sheila. Police believe that Martha had been caught off guard while she was making the walk to her house. She was then bludgeoned from behind in her driveway with a golf club. 
She was so viciously attacked that the club's metal shaft would end up snapping. This didn't stop the killer, however. When this happened, she was then stabbed to death with the broken shaft before she was dragged into her own yard and put under a tall pine tree. The head of the broken six iron was found near the driveway. The broken shaft of the club was driven through Martha's neck and then discarded. Her pants and her underwear had been pulled down to her ankles. However, there were no signs of rape or sexual assault during the autopsy. Which, I hate to put it this way, is thankful. There's like this huge trending audio in TikTok right now, the whole like, but how is the best case scenario Joe Biden? Basically that how is something still so heinous still accepted as the best? Sadly, for a woman when they are brutally murdered, having no signs of sexual assault is a plus. And I don't know of any other way to say that and I feel disgusted that I even did. But that is a fact, especially when it looks as though that has occurred. Thankfully though, and even more disgustingly, it seems as though this was only done to Martha's body in order to humiliate her. Nonetheless, Martha's murder would be the very first murder to occur in Greenwich history for 30 years. And to this day, her murder still plagues Bellhaven and all of Greenwich. This is Bell Haven, a private community full of large homes, well-tended lawns, and wealthy homeowners. Crime seems unlikely here, and murder even more so. But on October 30th, 1975, a beautiful 15-year-old girl was bludgeoned to death. Former Greenwich Police Detective Stephen Carroll got the call. We knew it was a girl because her jeans and her panties had been pulled down below her knees. And uh, the head, her hair, was just red with blood, soaked with blood. Martha Moxley had been brutally beaten with a golf club, then stabbed through the neck with a broken club shaft. Her lifeless body lay next to a tree, not far from where her mother, Dorothy, had been anxiously waiting for her daughter to come home. In the days after the murder, the investigation focused on 17-year-old Tommy Skakel. Tommy was the son of Rushton Skakel, who is Ethel Kennedy's brother and Tommy had been with Martha the night of the murder, along with a group of friends that included his younger brother, Michael Skakel. Martha Moxley was voted best personality in middle school. She got straight A's and loved to play basketball. She was known to be grounded and every once in a while for getting into a little bit of trouble, but that's a normal teenager. Dorothy, Martha's mother, initially didn't really want Martha to go out on mischief's night. She wasn't too enthralled about her daughter being involved with these pranks. But she also didn't want her daughter to be left out. So she caved. When 2am came around, however, and Martha still wasn't home, Dorothy began to worry. She then called her daughter's friend Sheila McGuire. Sheila's mom woke her up because she's the one who answered the phone and asked Sheila had she seen Martha. Sheila said she hadn't. At 3.45 in the morning, Dorothy then called police and again called Sheila. At this point though, even though she called police and Sheila, she wasn't extremely worried because it was mischief night. Which meant usually kids would stay past and create a lot of trouble, not just for the neighborhood, but for their parents. 
I'm not positive what the police responded to Dorothy with, like if they said, hey, call back in the morning because you know how kids are. I don't know. All I know is initially it was seemed as though nobody really should worry about Martha in that moment. Because like I said, mischief night was something that was annual and everybody expected it. However, I do find it a rather a kind of alarming to me that if a mother calls and is panicking, a bit worried that their child hasn't returned, that why wouldn't the police just drive out and I don't know, just assure her? Try and just look into it. Some sort of comfort maybe, because forgive me for saying this, but I feel like that's what the system should be there. Give comfort, make sure nobody's hurt, no laws are broken, and just make sure all order is correct. However, they didn't do that, and the night would continue. Sadly, and most grotesque of all, during all of these calls, Martha was most likely lying right there in the yard, and her mother had no idea just how close Martha really was. So while waiting up for her daughter to return, Dorothy would eventually fall asleep. When she woke up the next morning, Martha's room was still empty. She didn't come home, which immediately made Dorothy call another friend of Martha's. Helen said the last time that she saw Martha was when she was leaving the Skakel house, which is located right next to the Moxley home. Dorothy ran right over. Michael, Tommy's 15-year-old brother, answered the door. He said that he didn't know where Martha was, though. I don't know, I haven't seen her, so sorry, I can't help you. Dorothy then asked if maybe it was possible if she had fallen asleep inside their camper parked in the driveway. Michael said, I don't know, let's go check, and they did that. Michael let her in, however, Martha was not in there. She was nowhere to be found. By now, Sheila had also begun to look for her friend Martha, because remember, she was called the night before. While Sheila was walking around the neighborhood, she decided to check the Moxley's backyard, just in case maybe, maybe she was like intoxicated, fell asleep, or you never know. This is when she found Martha's body. Hysterical, Sheila ran back out to the front yard to find an adult. Dorothy at this time was actually at her friend Jean Walker's house, which was located in the neighborhood, having coffee. She was currently being reassured by her friend that Martha was fine and would eventually turn up. All because nothing bad had ever happened in Greenwich, at least not in 30 years. But this is when she would hear the news, because she could hear Sheila's hysterical cries. Immediately, they knew what happened. The mood changed and Jean decided it was best if she went and found out what Sheila had saw. This way, Dorothy could kind of just digest. This is when Sheila told Jean exactly what she had found. As Jean walked in to call 911, Dorothy looked up and asked, Is she dead? To which Jean replied, I think so. It was fairly obvious to us that uh, this was a jealous attack. Uh, it definitely had sexual connotations. And, and it was probably Tommy. Even though police found a set of golf clubs in the Skakel house that matched the murder weapon, they never had enough evidence for an arrest, leading to criticism of the police handling of the investigation. And Carol now says they could have done more. I probably was intimidated by the, the, the wealth and the power and, and the money there uh, because we knew who they were. We knew the relationship between uh, the Skakels and the Kennedys. And so the case lay dormant for years, but the story did not. 
am so bummed right now. I just recorded this whole segment, had it edited and everything, and then when I went to save it, all as I wanted it, it, it just crashed. So here we are, welcome to take two of this segment. So at this point, police were theorizing that Martha had been murdered between 9.45 and 10 p.m. This means that Tommy Skakel was the last person to see Martha alive. On Halloween day, both Tommy Skakel and his younger brother Michael were questioned by the police. Tommy Skakel had a pretty weak alibi. He said that after he and Martha had hung out on mischief night, she went home. He also said that he last saw her walking from his house towards hers. Which only gives her about a 200 yard radius to just like, be murdered. And if he saw her walking, I feel maybe he would have seen something suspicious in that time frame or in that distance. However, he says he then just turned around, went inside, and joined his tutor, Kenneth Littleton, in watching The French Connection. After this, he went to his room and studied for a report that he had on Abraham Lincoln. Now, I said that this alibi was weak. And that was because when police would go talk to Kenneth Littleton to in fact verify this, he would state that this wasn't exactly how it went down. Kenneth told police that Tommy didn't join him until about 10.30 to watch The French Connection. Which means Tommy just happened to leave out about an hour of time. Kenneth also told police that Michael didn't join them until about a half an hour after that. So where was Michael at during the murder of Martha? Michael says that he was at his cousin's house watching Monty Python. However, his cousin never confirmed that Michael was actually there. And Michael's alibi would constantly change over the years. The focus of the police investigation on the Skakel household would intensify, especially after it was discovered that the golf club used to murder Martha matched a set that belonged to Anne Skakel. And in this set, obviously, there was a missing six iron. Like I said, the very one that was used to brutally and savagely end Martha's life. Police would spend months interviewing hundreds of people and giving several polygraph examinations. Even Tommy was given two. One was inconclusive and the other he would pass. But all we know about polygraph tests is that they're kind of just bullshit. In fact, if you Google how to beat one, you basically can. I'm not saying that they can't be valid or possibly have a grain of truth. I'm just saying apparently it's said that you can manipulate them. Anyways, after months of trying to cooperate with the investigation, Patriarch Rushton Skakel put a hold on any more questioning by the police also blocking school and mental health records for both Tommy and Michael on the advice of the family's lawyer. Sorry, I meant lawyers, because they had many and multiple. Remember, they, they weren't hurting for money, so like, at this point, they were like, listen, money knows no bounds. If you're gonna leave our family alone, and you're not gonna be able to find out anything else. Basically, just looking super innocent because they stopped cooperating. I mean, I get being annoyed and just being tired of being badgered, but when your child is the last to be seen with a, uh, a person who ended up dead, maybe you shouldn't just go, I'm done cooperating, okay, thank you. It's only been a few months. Martha's never coming back. So, I don't know, maybe they could have just been like, yeah, no, we got you, what do you need? We, we want you to know that our children are innocent. But that's not exactly the way it would go down. 
Let's continue, shall we? In 1975, Tommy told police he was with Martha, but went home to complete a book report and never saw her again. Fifteen years later, when the private investigators hired by his father asked Tommy about that night, he changed his story. Tommy says that, yes, he did go in the house at 9.30, but he returned outside for this 20-minute, prearranged 20-minute uh, sexual interlude with Martha at the edge of the property. And Michael said for the first time he had been there, too, after giving his cousin a ride home. Uh, Michael said that, yes, he did take Jim Terrian home with his brothers, but came back at about 11, 11.15, and he went over to Martha's house, climbed a tree near the house, and was throwing pebbles at the window trying to get her attention while he's masturbating in the tree. At this point, police decided to change it up a little bit and start looking at Mr. Kenneth Littleton. Just a few months after Martha's murder, Rushton Skakel actually would end up firing Kenneth. I'm not exactly sure what the reason was. If you look online, you can find a few different things, but let's just say he was let go. And it seems like his luck kind of was running out at this point because in July of 1976, Kenneth would end up being arrested. Now this had nothing to do with Martha's murder. This was all in relation to burglary and theft. Now, while he was in custody for this burglary and theft that he had done, the police wanted to give him a polygraph test that had to do with Martha's murder. And Kenneth was like, yeah, sure, whatever, I'll answer some questions, let's go ahead and do this. But he would actually end up failing this. Now, don't put too much into him failing because it doesn't mean he's guilty. Again, polygraph tests are very unreliable. There are people that actually believe that Kenneth did kill Martha, but I am not one of those. And I don't think the police are either. However, Kenneth would end up pleading guilty to burglary charges and was sentenced to five years of probation. Now let's move away from Kenneth for a minute because I want to tell you about something a security guard saw in Bellhaven. The police were provided with a description of a man that a security guard at Bellhaven said he saw slipping in between two houses. This was on the very night that Martha was murdered. And the two houses he saw this person going between were right across from the Skakels. Which, if you couldn't put two and two together, means he was talking about Martha's house and the one adjacent to it. Now the security guard said he saw this person at around 10 p.m. that night, which really does kind of in line with the police's theory of the time that she was murdered. Police would go on to interview a man by the name of Dan Connor. This was a 26-year-old in the neighborhood who actually resembled the guard's description of the person he saw going in between the two houses. However, Dan had an alibi that checked out. He was at a friend's house watching The French Connection. Man, people really liked The French Connection in the 70s, didn't they? Seriously, what the fuck is The French Connection? Anyways, at this point, Julie Skakel, Michael's sister, told police that she also saw someone darting through the yard, just like the security guard did. But she said that she thought it could have been her brother Michael, however. Years later, she would say that she could no longer be sure that it was actually Michael. This was because so many kids were actually at their house and around their house that night because it was mischief night. 
Police also spoke to a man by the name of Peter Zaluka. Peter was the boy that Martha was planning to go to the Greenleaf dance with. His alibi was that he stayed home, smoked some weed, and watched The French Connection. Seriously, what the fuck is it with this show? Okay, th so there weren't really like a lot of TV networks back then. So, I mean, I guess apparently the shows were limited according to Google, but Jesus Christ, everybody was watching this shit. I mean, I grew up in like the 80s and the 90s, and I remember having a turn dial TV and having to choose from like a handful of channels. So I guess the 70s was a little bit worse. Nothing like it is today with our streaming cable and phones. But anyways, Peter said after this he then fell asleep. His parents also confirmed that he was in fact home the whole evening. Peter would later go on to tell the police this. I mean, if I'd gotten in the car that night and illegally driven down to Belhaven, maybe Martha wouldn't be dead. Or maybe I'd be dead too. And who knows? Maybe he would. However, police now believe that the most plausible suspects were Kenneth Littleton, or Michael Skakel, or Tommy Skakel, either individually or even possibly together. But they had no concrete evidence. That is, except for the golf club. However, by 1976, the case would be considered cold, and Martha's family would leave Belhaven. Meanwhile, the private investigator's report found its way to Mark Furman, a former detective known for his role in the O.J. Simpson case. Furman wrote a book that argued Michael Skakel, not Tommy, killed Martha, and then reportedly confessed to the crime during a stay at a drug rehabilitation center in Maine. It's a charge that Michael and his lawyer strongly deny. So this is a black or white issue. He either did it or he didn't. Michael has stated all along he did not do this, he had no knowledge of it. But a grand jury seemed to feel there was enough evidence to proceed, and on March 14th, Michael Skakel was formally charged with the murder of Martha Moxley. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about the Skakels, because like I said, when I first saw this whole murder in Greenwich, the murder of Martha Moxley story on TV with my mom, instantly I was like, man, those Skakels are some real pieces of shit, aren't they? Actually, I didn't say it like that. I was, I was very young. However, I didn't think they were good. I thought they were boo-boo heads, you know? Real jerks. Whatever bad words I said as a kid. So the Skakels were a prominent family in Connecticut, though. Cousins of the Kennedys. And yes, those Kennedys. In 1991, William Kennedy Smith was tried and acquitted for rape. During this case, a rumor surfaced that he had been with the Skakels the night of Martha's murder. Though the rumor would eventually prove to be untrue, it was enough to investigate the reopening of the Martha case. So some good came out of it because remember, Martha's case had been cold for years up until this point. Rushton Skakel determined to put all the rumors about his son to rest. He would then hire a private investigator firm, Sutton Associates, to look into Martha Moxley's death and clear his family's name once and for all. This proved to be a pretty bad move, however. In what became known as the, quote, Sutton Report, which would find its way into the hands of journalist and even OJ murderer detective Mark Furman. Both Tommy and Michael would end up changing their alibis. That's a big no-no. No, 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 no. I don't care how long an investigation's going. You don't do that. 
That makes you suspicioso. If you don't, if you don't know what that means, it means suspicious. But nonetheless, Tommy and Michael had admitted those years later that they were both lying to the police all those years before about their whereabouts the night of Martha's murder. Tommy said he did go home around 9.30, and he did see Martha heading home at the same time. However, he didn't actually go inside to watch TV and work on schoolwork like he had claimed. Instead, he basically turned right back around and spent another 20 minutes with Martha. He claimed that they were engaging in a sexual act. He then went back home around 10 o'clock and watched the TV show that he claimed, you guys know, The French Connection, because everybody was fucking watching it apparently. Oddly enough though, this story now matches with the time frame of Kenneth. Remember, Kenneth said that he didn't come in at 9.30, Tommy came in later than that, which this would make the accounts line up. Now what about Michael though? Well, just like Michael said, he had lied. He wasn't hanging out with his cousins like he had claimed originally. Instead, his whereabouts are they're largely unknown, actually. But he goes so far as to place himself at the scene of the crime, though. Listen, all I gotta say is if you could put yourself anywhere, don't put it at the fucking crime scene. That's all I gotta say. Now, he says that he drunkenly stumbled around the neighborhood that night and then decided to climb up a tree outside of Martha's bedroom window. And while there, he decided, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna rub one out right here. And he sat there and masturbated. After he got his oomph, he climbed out of the tree and he said he heard some voices and this is when he decided to run as fast as he could home. He states that this all happened just after midnight. Investigators weren't so sure that Michael was actually telling the truth, however. Yes, it's possible he could have gone up the tree and didn't notice Martha's dead body down by it, but just not so likely. Furthermore, it was just really odd that he would place himself at the crime scene doing some really weird shit. And this is when Michael Skakel became the number one suspect at least in the eyes of the Sutton investigators and the Greenwich police, who were now reopening the case. It is the whopper of all evidentiary cover stories. Martha wasn't there, so I masturbated in the tree. This is strange behavior by strange people. Now we're supposed to assume that this is a fairly normal 15-year-old. Well, I'm sorry, this is not very, fairly normal behavior. The reported new version of Michael's activities placed him everywhere the victim had been. From the spot where she had first been attacked to the tree where her body was discovered. I kind of want to talk about Michael Skakel for a few minutes because, well, he rubs me the wrong way. I don't like him. And in fact, I don't like the Skakels at all. I think they're both really grimy. I think they tell a lot of lies, actually, and that makes them disgusting because there's somebody's life that was lost and they can't get their shit straight. Like, let me pause for a second. Let me just say something. Guilty or not, if you are involved in some sort of event that ended somebody's life or you know shit and you cannot get your story straight, even if you didn't do anything, you are a trash, garbage fucking person. Just tell the fucking truth. Even if it makes you look bad and you know that you didn't do shit, 
Tell the fucking truth. It helps find what happened to somebody who is no longer here anymore. So again, if Michael did something, if Tommy did something, just fucking admit it. They can't say what they actually did. They can't keep their story straight. And I think they are both fucking trash. But opinions aside, let's get back to the story and let's talk a little bit about Michael. So Michael did have it pretty rough. He lost his mom at a young age and died of cancer at the age of 13 for Michael. And he turned to drinking to handle this pain. The handle the loss of his mother was so much for him that at 13 years old, he was like, you know what I'm going to do to fix this? I'm going to fucking drink. I do not know about you, but at 13, the last thing I was thinking about was doing shots of whiskey, vodka, or gin. No, I was thinking about my pogs and my Tonka trucks and my Barbies. And I think I just started to have crushes on boys, something like that. However, because of all of these issues and his drinking, he would actually end up being arrested in 1978 for drunk driving. Because of this, he would be sent to a private school in Poland, Maine. This was a school for wealthy and affluent kids with serious behavioral and substance issues. However, this school didn't really help him because Michael would end up running away several times. And even after the fact, he would end up going to rehab a lot in his life. Eventually, in the 80s, he decided he needed to get sober. This brings me to his cousin, Robert F. Kennedy. He credits Michael for helping him get sober and is a vigilant defender of Michael's innocence. Then, in 1993, Michael married Margot Sheridan. And in 1998, the two would have a son and settle in Hobe Sound, Florida. Now, this is where Michael decided he's going to write a book. That's right, he writes up a proposal for a book that he wants to create. It's a tell-all book, by the way. He wants to share everything about his family and the Kennedys, and he wanted to call it Dead Man Talking. A Kennedy Cousin Comes Clean. However, as you can figure, this book never made publication. Damn, so bummed I missed it. Anyways, let's continue. I mean, he could just, like, you know, tell everything because he wants to be a good person but no he's not making money off of that so <laughs> that's a dumb idea levitt believes that the forensic technology of the 1990s had forced tommy and michael skakel to amend alibis they'd maintained since the 1970s why would they come up with changing stories unless they feared that they did leave some semen or dna uh, at the scene, unless it was to cover themselves. If the Skakels had let this alone, they wouldn't be in the hot water there and today. The Skakels themselves have done the best job of making the Skakels look guilty. In June of 1998, a rarely invoked one-man grand jury was convened by the district attorney, Jonathan Benedict. This was done in order to review the evidence in the case that was built against Michael Skakel. It was then decided that there was enough evidence to charge Michael with Martha's murder. Michael then surrendered to the authorities that day. However, he was released very quickly on a $500,000 bail. Then, on March 14, 1999, Michael Skakel was arraigned for murder in juvenile court. This was because he was 15 years old at the time of Martha's murder. On January 31st, 2001, a judge ruled that Michael would be tried as an adult. You've got the wrong guy, said Michael's giggle during his arraignment. It wasn't me, it was the one-armed man. 
<clears throat> sure, Michael, sure. His trial began on May 7, 2002 in Connecticut. Now, there wasn't a lot of forensic evidence in this case, however. Prosecutors really had to rely on witness testimony, and they also had to rely on the consistently weak and changing alibis in the case. The whole masturbating in a tree thing was talked about at length, and I do mean at length, in passages for his tell-all book, Dead Man Talking. You know, the one that never got printed, but he really wanted to write so he could share his side, but only if he could make some money. Although he never actually admitted to murder in the proposal, he did talk about jerking off in the tree right over where Martha's body would have been laying. So, let me just say, kind of odd that he would make sure that he shared, hey, by the way, uh, I went to Martha's house, she wasn't there, so I just decided to pleasure myself in the tree. Like, did he, did he need to say that? Unless he was truly worried that there could be a chance, possibly, that his seminal fluid would be found. Or maybe he really was just super frisky, couldn't make it that 200 yards to his house, had to go up into the tree and hope that he could see Martha for some glimpse of a titty or something just so he could uh, 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 right there in the tree. Because apparently imagination wasn't really his strong suit. Now, former students at the school in which he was sent to testified that they actually heard Michael confessing to murdering Martha. This was something that really aggravated me when I watched this whole case show documentary many, many, many years ago with my mom because he really did seem to brag about what he did. Greg Coleman testified that Michael bragged to him, quote, I'm going to get away with murder because I'm a Kennedy. Greg also told him that Michael made advances on Martha. However, she rejected those advances. Remember, it seemed as though she liked Tommy, and Tommy liked her. So, because she rejected these advances, according to Michael, what he told Greg was that he then took the golf club and drove it into her skull. Greg also said that Michael had admitted at least twice at school that he had killed Martha. Yeah, more than one time he was over here bragging about it. Greg died of a heroin overdose in 2001, but his recorded testimony was played in court. His widow, Elizabeth Coleman, was called to corroborate her husband's testimony, saying that Greg also told her about Michael and that, quote, Michael told Greg he had murdered her with a golf club. And she added that he said he would get away with it because he was, quote, related to the Kennedys. But this wasn't the only person that mentioned how much Michael loved to brag about what he did. As we go forward, you're gonna see just why I don't trust Michael Skakel. When former LAPD detective Mark Furman published Murder in Greenwich, Who Killed Martha Moxley? The controversial detective examined the public record especially the new revelations contained in the Sutton report, and then did a little investigating of his own. When he finished, Furman had come to an explosive conclusion. Martha Moxley's killer was not Tommy Skakel, as police had reportedly suspected for more than two decades, but his younger brother, Michael. Michael. 
This brings us to another student by the name of Jennifer Peace. Jennifer testified that Greg had told her something very similar as well. And at this point, many of you are probably like, okay, so he said, she said, oh, what's that mean? According to Limp Bizkit, he said, she said, it's nothing but bullshit. However, this could still hold a little bit of water. Another school's alum, John Higgins, testified that he heard Michael launch into a very teary monologue about the night that Martha had died, in which he ended it by saying, I did it, as he sobbed. He said that he was in his garage, and then all of a sudden he was running through the woods. He said he had a golf club in his hands, and he looked up and saw pine trees. Then, the next thing he remembers is that he woke up in his house. And that was what he said as he told him crying. He said he didn't know whether he did anything or not. He thought maybe he had done it, but he wasn't positive what exactly had happened. Eventually, he came to the point that he must have done it. He must have. Which is why he was crying, standing in front of John, saying, I did it. At least according to John. John did acknowledge, though, under cross-examination, that he didn't really know if Michael was guilty or not, however. Just that he believed that this story he told him directly by Michael was some way or not true. Because John said that it definitely seemed like Michael had some sort of serious guilt around Martha's murder. Two other students, Charles Saigon and Dorothy Rogers, also testified that they never heard Michael confess, although he would be mocked and taunted by his peers in group therapy sessions. Quote, he never admitted to it, but he also didn't exactly deny it, which would lead to him being teased and being called a murderer. Another classmate, Elizabeth Arnold, testified about what she heard from Michael in a group therapy. By the way, this was all at that super elite private school for like abuse and substance issues. That's why there's therapy going on. He quote, didn't know what happened that night. He was extremely drunk and was stated to be blackout, at least according to him. This is what Elizabeth said. And he didn't know if he had done it or if his brother had done it. She also said that Michael was in some sort of jealous rage about his brother Tommy being able to hook up with Martha because it seems as though Michael liked Martha. She continued on stating, I said, how could that happen? How could your brother do that to you? And he said, well, they didn't really have sex, but they were fooling around. He stole my girlfriend. Side note, dude, I don't think that Martha was anybody's girlfriend. And from what many other people were saying, Martha wanted to, like, do things with Tommy. Like, they were literally seen canoodling. From all accounts, though, she really wasn't Michael's girlfriend. Like, at all. Seriously. Not just from what I told you. Like, there was no correlation that the two were dating. But if he was that into her, this could actually be motive. The defense also brought out Martha's diary passages, claiming that it was known by all the kids in the neighborhood and at the school that Michael Skakel actually did indeed have a crush on Martha. And some might even say this crush was more than that, that this was actually an obsession. According to Furman's theory, the two siblings were both attracted to the beautiful girl next door. The night of the murder, Furman wrote, Michael fell into a jealous frenzy after seeing Martha and his older brother together. As she left the Skakel house, sometime after 11 p.m., Furman believes, Michael followed her into the yard. He grabs a golf club 
and in a fit of rage, he chases after Martha. Martha gets almost home, and she turns around and he hits her. Maybe he doesn't realize how hard he hit her, uh, but she goes down, she's unconscious. Now, the rage is still there. He grabs her by the ankles, drags her face down 46 feet by a small Japanese elm tree, and uh, commences to beat her with the golf club. Rushton Skakel and all of the Skakel siblings would attend the trial at one point or another, also including Tommy, who lived in Massachusetts and reportedly hadn't been in the same room as his brother in decades. Nothing to break a family apart like murder. Then, on June 7, 2002, Michael Skakel was found guilty of murdering Martha Moxley. He was sentenced to 20 years to life. He was then assigned to the Garner Correction Institution in Newton. Dorothy Moxley, Martha's mother, would tell reporters after the verdict, quote, Today is a day that there is a winner and a loser. I just hate those days. I wanted to find justice for Martha. That's what this is. It's all about Martha. I do, however, have empathy for the Skakel family. This brings us to January of 2003. Robert F. Kennedy would write a controversial article in the Atlantic Monthly titled Miscarriage of Justice. In this piece, he would insist that his cousin Michael was innocent and that this was all triggered by a super inflamed media, that an innocent man was now in prison over all of this hearsay. He argued that there was more evidence and that Kenneth Littleton probably was the one who killed Martha. But wouldn't you know, his cousin was paying for somebody else doing it. Quote, for me to come out and publicly to defend someone that basically everybody in the country feels is guilty of murder is, from a personal strategy, not probably a good choice for me. But I know Michael is innocent. <laughs> is he? Anyways, Robert would later write a book titled Framed, Why Michael Skakel Spent Over a Decade in Prison for a Murder He Didn't Commit. Yes, that is the whole title. Little unnecessary and a little bit run on, but you know what? It's not my book. That's why I'm not an author. Apparently, I would make too short of a title, so, you know. <laughs> maybe, maybe I am wrong here, but for me, I just wish they would shut up and stop. Like, it's obvious that somebody in that fucking house did something. Like, somebody in the Skakel household did something to Martha. Otherwise, whoever did it, just like some random person, happened to have a, like, you-can-do-it bag put together by the Skakels because every ounce of evidence points to somebody from that house. But, you know, <laughs> I'm not in crime, so I can't tell you for sure. I just report it. But all in all, them defending just how innocent they really are, or just how innocent Michael is, is quite exhausting. If you are so innocent, you don't have to defend yourself that hard. All I gotta say. Michael finished her off, Furman believes, stabbing her through the neck with the shaft of the broken six iron. His theory threw into question long-standing assumptions about the case. For two decades, police had publicly indicated that the murder took place between 9.30 and 10 p.m. when Dorothy Moxley and others heard a sudden commotion outside her house. Drawing on blood evidence from the scene, as well as the changing stories of the Skakel boys themselves, Furman raised the possibility that the attack may have occurred later than previously believed.
So then, of course, throughout the years, Michael and his family and his attorneys would file appeals in order for him to get a new trial. And in October of 2013, he was granted a new trial by the Connecticut judge Thomas A. Bishop. He ruled that Michael's attorney, Michael Sherman, failed to adequately represent Michael when he was originally convicted. So on November 21st of 2013, Michael was released from prison on a $1.2 million bond. He also had to wear a GPS device all the time. He could not have any contact with anyone in the Moxley family. He also had to check in over the phone periodically and could not leave the state, obviously unless he was granted any other permission. He was later granted permission to relocate to Westchester County in New York, which of course he did. Then on May 4th, 2018, the Connecticut Supreme Court would end up vacating Michael's conviction and ordered a new trial. All of these conditions were removed. The court ruled that Michael Sherman, his first attorney, had rendered ineffective assistance. This was because he failed to contact in an alibi witness whose name was provided by Michael Skakel himself. This meant that as a result, Michael was not given a fair trial, apparently. State prosecutors still have the power to call a new trial against Michael, but that has to date not been done and most likely never will. So as it stands, Michael Skakel is technically a free and innocent man. Dorothy Moxley, Martha's mother, does believe she knows exactly who killed her daughter that evening. And she believes that if Michael Skakel had come from a poor family in her words, he would have been done for. But because he came from a family with many means and many ties, this was able to be stretched for years and Michael was able to walk. Now, I don't know what your take is on this case. I don't know if you have ever heard about it. I don't know if you've done your own research or if you just want to take what I told you. But I have always felt that Michael Skakel did do it. I believe that he was jealous and his rage took him over, that he believed he had some sort of say over Martha because he was obsessed with her. And because he wanted her so badly, it enraged him to know that Martha wanted Tommy. What did Tommy have that Michael didn't is what I believe Michael thought. And he was so mad that he took Martha away. After all, she was the problem between them, correct? If Martha didn't want him, then he would remove her. That's my opinion, however. I don't know what yours is. Do you think that Michael is the one who killed Martha? Do you believe that it was Tommy? Do you believe that it was Kenneth? Or do you believe it was just some random person, a random, horrible, brutal murder that just happened to frame somebody in the Skakel household? I don't know about you, but if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, it may just as well be a duck. And in my opinion, that duck is Michael Skakel. Quack, quack, bitch, quack, quack. New this noon, a Connecticut prosecutor says Kennedy cousin Michael Skakel will not face a second trial in the killing of Martha Moxley. Skakel was convicted of murder in 2002 and served 11 years in prison, but was free when a judge overturned his conviction in 2013. Prosecutors faced several difficulties in retrying Skakel, including a lack of physical evidence and the death of a key witness. The announcement comes on the 45th anniversary of Moxley's murder.
Alright guys, I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was kind of everywhere, a little bit all over. Sorry about that. I am still unpacking and really should be unpacking at this very moment. But I really, really, really wanted to get an episode out for you guys so you could at least know that I'm still here. Plus, I've always wanted to share the story of Bartha Moxley. Because, like I said, this was the very first crime story, the crime case, whatever it was you want to call, that made me realize how much I enjoyed this. I know it's really weird and fucked up to say, but learning about murder and reading about the dark shit that happens in the world has always been some sort of weird comfort for me. No, I don't find it good and comforting that people are so fucked up that they end others' lives. I find it comforting to know that the things that I've experienced in my life because of very bad and evil people is apparently something that happens often. And I guess when you're faced with very heinous events, things that should end your life and you survive, it oddly comforts you enough to know that this happens more than you could think. Anyways, this was What the Actual F and this was the case of Martha Moxley. A case that in a way had justice but still has none. A 15-year-old girl was brutally murdered, and we are still not sure exactly who did it. We may have our ideas and our suspicions, but nobody has really answered for this crime. And I don't know if they ever will. Anyways, I hope you guys enjoyed the case of Martha Moxley, and if you want me to look into any certain cases or anything that you're interested in, please send me an email. You can do so at whattheactualeffharmony at gmail.com. I love you guys, and I look forward to talking to you on the next episode of What the Actual F. But for now, I am going to go ahead and get some unpacking and setting up done. And I have to prepare for a hurricane heading right toward us. Woo! Love it. Alright guys, have a wonderful rest of your day. I love you, and I'll talk to you on the next episode of What the Actual F. Bye! Please stop listening. Bye! Go, 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 go!